Welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast, where we talk to C-level leaders from across the payments landscape. We'll be discussing the products and services that impact the payment space today, as well as trends and predictions for the future of payments. We will also hear stories from our guests about their journeys to the top. Elegant, simple technology, all under a unified API, number one. Number two, all the different rails so that you have speed, variety of options, right? We don't just want to say just RTP because the ultimate reality is to be competitive in this landscape, you need to have all versions and we manage for that. On top of that is the routing and orchestration, which is IP for our company around how that transaction should actually go forward. Hi, everyone. That was Stephanie Kirkpatrick, the CEO of Orem, and she is our special guest this week on the Leaders in Payments podcast. And I'm your host, Greg Myers. Stephanie has a vision for payments and a passion for ice cream, and she comes by her entrepreneurial spirit naturally as the daughter of an immigrant who came to the U.S. with nothing and built from zero to something. This in and of itself gave her passion for what our financial system can do to power the American household. Orem is a B2B embedded payments program that gives customers access to their money faster. Through their unified API, you can move money in all directions and across all major domestic payment rails. Orem is consistently optimizing for speed, risk, and cost so that consumers' lives can be transactional 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Tune in this week and hear Stephanie talk about the future of crypto, the necessity of RTP, and the $72 trillion market that Orem strives to support and optimize. We've got a great episode ahead, so let's get started. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you for being here and welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast. Greg, good morning. Thanks for having me today. So let's dive right in. Tell our audience a little bit about yourself, maybe where you grew up, where you went to school, where you currently live, and we'll cover your professional journey in a minute, but maybe just cover a few of those things to get started. Sure. This is actually something I don't get to cover in podcasts very often. So I'm excited to tell you guys that I am born and raised in Portland, Oregon, and I consider the Pacific Northwest to be one of the most incredible places in this country. Despite the rain, it's just (laughs) a wonderful place to have grown up. I spent my childhood skiing in the mountains and water skiing on lakes in the summer. And as I now live um, in the suburbs of New York City, and I'm raising two little girls, I'm really pining for that West Coast life. So while I love New York, and I love the proximity to Manhattan and all the great things about being out East, there's definitely a part of my heart that's still out West. So I grew up in Portland, Oregon. After all those years of rain and gray, despite wonderful summers, I swore up, down, and sideways. I couldn't do it anymore. And so I went to Southern California. I went to college and ended up spending a good number of years living in Los Angeles, which I also swore I would never leave because it was (laughs) so fantastic. And every winter here, which now I think we're going on maybe winter number eight living out east, every winter and every long spring that really isn't spring, it's just an extension of winter, I question my decision. So we're starting to crawl out of that period where I'm like, oh gosh, New York's amazing. And the tulips are in bloom and the peonies are out. So we're feeling pretty good over here in general, but you know it's always fun to kind of think about how life has been very serendipitous and so much about things that I love to do today originated with life in the Northwest, including how we cook, how we eat, how we like to adventure and travel and everything in between. That's great. Well, let's talk about the company, Orem. So tell our audience what Orem does. This is one of my favorite parts of the conversation because when I think about what Orem does, you know, the first thing I'll say is just really our vision before I tell you about the actual products today, is to power a better financial system where everyone has the freedom to build to their potential. 
And the reason I care so much about this is one, I'm the daughter of an immigrant who, much like we're seeing in today's environment, lived through a period of war overseas, came to the US with nothing. And so having seen what it looks like to be a refugee, to enter America and to build from zero to something, I've always had in my life the interest and the passion for what our financial system can do to empower the American household. And so as much of my career has been focused in some way in that area, and as a financial planner, the reason that we designed Dorm the way we did is really to come back to solving this problem of building a better system. And so well, ultimately, Orem is a B2B platform, embedded payments, and we're an API product that I'll tell you a bit more about. The person I wake up thinking about is the end customer of whatever mortgage company, lender, fintech, bank, wealth manager, e-commerce provider that Orem is going to support. How does that end customer have a better experience with financial services, more access, faster access to their own money, more financial opportunity because of Orem. And so what we do, plain and simple, we are the leading provider of a multi-rail smart money movement system. Said better, more specifically, under a unified API, you can move money in all directions. So we do all types of account-to-account transfers across all major domestic payment rails. And so the beauty of this design is, one, it's very simple and elegant. So for the developers out there, I think about them as well, not just the end-to-end customer. So the elegance and simplicity to be able to, in one sprint, maybe two, build out an entire payment stack is pretty powerful. Most companies today, fintech or otherwise, who are looking to do something in the money movement space for any number of reasons, need to build full teams. They need to build an entire compliance program. They need to run an anti-money laundering service. They need to do lots of complex things. And it's high cost, both in terms of engineering resources, operations, overhead, and the cost to do business with the banks. And so we simplify all of that. And because we include a network of banks and an entire portfolio of rails, whether you're trying to get money paid out from an insurance platform to a customer via RTP, which we can do 7 days a week, 24-7, 365 in 15 seconds, or whether you're looking to simply do some form of an ACH transaction on a regular normal schedule, everything is possible and highly configurable within our platform. And our platform uses the framework of routing and orchestration to think about which is the best bank for this transaction to flow through. What is the best set of payment rails? How should this transaction go forward? And we're always optimizing for speed, risk, and cost. So a good way to think about that is what you get from Amazon. I bet the last time, Greg, that you got a package on your front step, maybe you thought to yourself, fantastic, the timing was awesome. But did you stop and check? Was it UPS, FedEx, DHL, Amazon, Blue Van? You didn't. And you don't care. That's actually what's true about money movement, right? The simplicity of having something happen instantly, faster money movement available via very elegant, simplified APIs, or you do all that for us, we're going to build better products. So that's what we do. That's why we exist. And ultimately, why we're so excited about being at this sort of intersection in the financial ecosystem of infrastructure and what infrastructure can do to unlock net new financial services and better financial services products across the ecosystem. Okay, great. Thanks for that explanation. And you mentioned a few verticals in there. Do you mind kind of giving us a rundown of what verticals you are in today and what are the best kind of use cases for your product? The use cases are so interesting. Greg, right now we are seeing so much demand for probably no surprise to you and to some listeners, 
the intersection of the crypto wallet. So today, with so much happening in crypto, the speed at which you can get money into a crypto wallet or onto the blockchain and the speed at which you can get it out has become very important. And that's hard because in many cases, due to risk and other things, the on-ramp, off-ramp as it's called, is often done via wire. And if you think about that, the last time you did a wire was probably not that recent. So one, you don't do them very often. Two, they're really expensive and they don't scale. They're operationally inefficient. And so that is a huge place where things like real-time payments, request for pay, which is the real-time payments version of a poll, faster ACH and smart money movement can come into play and really solve for the problem of money into and out of crypto wallets. And the same thing is true with brokerage, right? Whether that's with a traditional incumbent financial services provider, whether that's with a fintech like a public or others, the ability to get my money into the market at night on the weekends, whether the market's open or not, but get my account funded, the efficiency of the cost of acquisition to have money available in the same time that the person's opening their account and doing their sign-up flow is really powerful. It's also really powerful. And again, this is where I think my CFP roots, you know, as a financial planner always come into play. You know, the number one thing that holds American households back from putting money into an investment portfolio, it actually isn't the inertia or lack of money or the budget. It's simply the fact that if they put it in and they had an emergency, it could be up to seven days before they could get the money back. Our most innovative way to access money is to go to the ATM on a Saturday, which isn't really that innovative. So by adding real-time payments to the ability to exit funds from a platform, that is a huge area of focus for us. And we're also really excited about a lot of pull from the market around B2B. B2B, of all the payments out there that happen in the US, there's about $72 trillion of transactions that happen on good old ACH, right? A 50-year-old system that's broken, brittle, and doesn't make sense for today's modern era. Don't even ask me about how much money still transacts on checks. And as you look at that, $72 trillion, about 50 trillion of it is B2B transactions. That's a really interesting place. The market is pulling us into that segment. And so, you know, as a young company, we try to be really focused in the verticals that we take on. I credit our chief revenue officer, who is former Marketa, who's steadfast about keeping our focus. But I will say that we're starting to spend a lot more time thinking about B2B. How do you go to market? Do you have a direct sales team or through partnership channels or both? So we have a direct sales team and we have done some experimentation with partnerships as well. The advice I'd give to any founder out there, and I got this advice from my investors, and I think it's worth passing along, is that direct sales gives you the most learnings. You touch the customer directly, you own the contract, you own the pricing, and you have a direct involvement in the integration and the use of the product. Once you've done that for a period of time and you get very good at what it takes to sell your own product directly you're probably then ready to think about partnership models. That said, we do have some partnership models that have been really powerful, be those referrals or platform partners to broaden our distribution. We do actually use both of those avenues as part of our go-to-market. And what countries are you currently in? I got some great advice a long time ago, actually. I was very fortunate to be a part of an acquisition of a tech company that we sold to Northwestern Mutual about six years ago. And I remember so many people asking the CEO at the time, John Schlifsky, hey, John, when are we going to sell life insurance internationally? And he kept saying, when every American household has a life insurance policy, we'll do that. It really resonated with me because certainly we've been asked to do even just like simple cross-border payments, right? Mexico and Canada. And one of the reasons why we haven't is one, credit again to our CRO, 
this idea of focus and really consistent, repeatable approaches. And two, there's $72 trillion of market opportunity. And while it will be fun to advance into international markets and cross-border payments, there's so much to solve that we can make better at home. And I want to spend time on that problem because, like I said, as I grew up, you know, I really saw what the immigrant life looked like and what a first-generation person coming to the U.S. experiences and what I understand from my financial planning background about households who want to unlock more financial access but don't know how. I want Orem to have a chance to spend time on that problem in a deep and meaningful way. So I don't know when the international will become kind of front and center for us. I'm sure the day will come. But for right now, there is just an incredible amount of opportunity for us right here at home. Yeah. When you start talking about B2B, there's no reason to even think about outside the U.S. with the opportunity in B2B payments. That's for sure. That's right. That's right. Until there's no more checks happening in B2B. <laughs> so that will probably take us a while. Yes, it definitely will. Would you say that the number one problem you're solving for is speed, is getting money to move faster? Ultimately, yes. Just like Amazon is solving for that in terms of availability of goods. And think about it. Amazon went from having faster delivery, but five days a week, maybe Saturdays. Now they deliver on Sundays. You get packages at 8 p.m. I don't know if I love that because you know my dogs always bark and then my kids, whatever. But it's become normal and expected that our consumer lives can basically be 24-7. And so when you translate that to the consumer's expectation of financial services, and you think about the fact that I couldn't get my own money from checking to savings on a high-yield platform faster than three to five days, we have a real problem. We have a really fundamental problem that has to be fixed. And the reason that that exists is because, again, our financial system largely relies on ACH which was built 50 years ago. It instant wasn't a contemplation of what was going to be needed. So the system itself doesn't have a lot of the capabilities. There are new generations of payment solutions, including RTP and actually launching in about two quarters, the Fed's version of faster payments called FedNow, which we interoperate with. And so we're here number one in service of speed. That is the expectation. That is the new norm. And that is where the world is going. And so if we can simplify that you and your business don't have to think about how would I get to speed, I send a payment transaction through Orem. Orem always optimizes with speed in mind. That takes care of a lot. The second thing is creating that interoperable layer between disparate systems. Today, you would probably, as you know, a fintech builder or a bank or a financial service provider, build two to three, maybe even five integrations, right? It's what I'm going to call kind of dumb payment rails. You have to go get each one individually. You have to have a whole team for that. And if a new idea gets created like FedNow, you spend two years worrying before it comes to market and then hoping you can get access to it. And that's where we come in. So in addition to just the pure concept of speed, the idea that you'd have all of those forms of money movement under a single integration is really powerful. You never have to think about how will the money move. You just start thinking about how fast. And so we manage for the rest of that. And that for me is one of the most exciting pieces because to be very frank, the system that the Fed is building and the system that the clearinghouse built for faster and instant payments, they don't talk to each other. So you can't send and receive on one or the other. It's a little bit like I can't start a transaction in Venmo and finish it in Zelle, even though those two things are designed for peer-to-peer. So we create the interoperable layer that says you can start a transaction on RTP and you can finish it on card rails or you can finish it on FedNow because we sit in the middle of a complex two-part transaction. And that we found as we've been out in market is one of the most impactful and highly differentiated things in addition to the speed component 
because of the absolute complexity of account to account transfers. I don't think I had appreciated this, you know, the number of times I've done a transaction in my life and bemoaned the speed. But as I started to understand what causes the problems in why speed is complicated, I had a whole new appreciation and hence why Orem was created. You mentioned a couple differentiators, obviously, being that sort of orchestration layer and, you know, speed being important. Are there other differentiators that make you different or unique from your competitors out there? Well, today, there aren't a lot of places where you can actually get something under a single API. And so I think if you look at Stripe as an example, when Stripe was coming to market with credit card processing, and they were able to do that in six lines of code, that was the same thing you could get at Wells Fargo, still can get from Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, credit card, merchant acquiring, processing, that all exists with the banks. And the way Stripe chose to think about it like we did is to say the differentiation starts with the simplicity for the technical builder. So that's one of our biggest things, right? You can get real-time payments from dozens of places. How you're going to get it, what you're going to pay for it, how hard it is to use, how good the APIs are, how often they introduce breaking changes, how tech-forward they are. Those are all considerations. So I'd say, again, just elegant, simple technology, all under a unified API, number one. Number two, all the different rails so that you have speed variety of options. Right? We don't just want to say just RTP because the ultimate reality is to be competitive in this landscape, you need to have all versions and we manage for that. On top of that is the routing and orchestration, which is IP for our company, around how that transaction should actually go forward. And then I think the third thing that is really powerful is that much of the services for compliance, for anti-money laundering, BSA programs, for OFAC checking, sanction screening, All of that additional work that requires headcount, vendors, operational staffing, traditionally, all sits within our platform. And we can be really flexible. If you already do KYC, fantastic. Bring your own KYC. We can accept that. You don't have KYC because you're a young company. We can offer that to you. So we've really thought about it in service of both emerging customers who are literally building, coming out of YC, building the next great thing in payment, all the way through the enterprise customer who may already have some things established and is just looking to modernize how they do certain things like file creation for ACH, all of that runs for APIs. You'll literally never cut a file ever again. And so front to back, you know, it allows us to service a pretty broad range of size of companies, even though we kind of maintain pretty specific focus today on the verticals we're in. Well, where do you see this part of the payments industry heading in the next, say, two to three years? You know, the trends that we've watched already are really, really interesting. I think we will continue to see an emphasis on speed. When you look at the data, where I think it's been really interesting is that real-time payments, though available, is actually only available to be sent by about 20 banks out of about 5,000. So again, back to the question of like, when does Orem go anywhere else but here? The answer is not only until everybody doesn't use checks, but also until all 5,000 banks can send and receive a real-time payment. Because we really won't have done our jobs if we don't create you ubiquity of access, right? And if I think about financial services, historically, as new products have been created in the fintech ecosystem to serve underbanked or credit invisible, accessing banking deserts, accessing real-time payments is going to be really important. I think you're just going to see that that trend continues. We are seeing companies pop up that are niche in their focus around real-time payouts, and they use us so they don't have to build a complex payments backend as their infrastructure. And that gets us really excited because we're then able to power the next generation of innovators who are bringing some aspect of real-time to the market and creating access across the ecosystem. 
So I think we're going to see a lot more in service of speed. I think the other thing we're going to see a lot of in the payments industry, which isn't actually something Orem does, but something we're excited about and where we partner closely with a lot of other companies is in the, in the identity space. Because ultimately, even five years ago, the vast majority of account opening was happening in person. KYC, know your customer, know your business, KYB. It wasn't predicated on a Google search to see if there's signage from a satellite video. It was predicated on the business owner or the customer walking into the bank and interacting with another human. And as that has shifted dramatically in the last five years, and especially through COVID, the necessity of the payments industry of really mastering identity in service of, one, absolutely protecting financial services from bad actors who not only may have fraudulent intentions, but actually even worse, have money laundering intentions is really crucial. And as fintechs have built so many innovative new solutions and grown quickly, they've paid a very high tax. That's just an accepted part of the system around fraud. And so I think the kind of intersection of identity and fraud will continue to be a growing force in terms of the ecosystem of payments and specifically in the infrastructure sector. You mentioned you're already involved in the on-ramps and off-ramps for crypto. Do you think there's a bigger play for blockchain and crypto in payments as more of a method of payment as opposed to just an investment in an asset, so to speak? That's a really good question. And Greg, if I knew the answer, gosh, I guess we'd be swapping ETH right now and both be rich. (laughs) What I would say here is, and again, my financial planning roots are kind of deep, so I can't really get rid of them. But you know, if I said to you, hey, I don't want to pay your salary in dollars, I want to pay your salary in stock of, you know, pick five different companies. That stock is not guaranteed to be at this current valuation, but most recently it's grown, 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 and grown. What would you do? Well, that's kind of the question we're asking about Bitcoin and crypto as a form of payment, right? It's not pegged to the dollar. We've already seen both just volatility, which is a natural part of an asset class, but especially recently. And two, we've certainly seen, even in the USDT specifically, digital currency category, an untethering of the connection between the stablecoin and the US dollar, which is where it's supposed to be pegged for stability. So I don't know the answer. I don't think anyone knows yet. I think there's certainly strong belief and conviction that it could become a form of payment. And with the degree of volatility, it's sort of like asking the question, do you want me to pay you in stock? If it's Google stock, maybe. But like, there's volatility for everybody. And so I don't know. I'm really curious to see how the intersection of the regulations, the continued advancement of the ability to peg stable coins to USD and everything that goes with that advances. Because I think there's real power. The faster we ultimately move away from opening our wallets and being like, well, I have cash, checks, credit cards, and then on my phone, I have all my digital forms of payment, the better. Because that's a complexity that our system doesn't really need. And it's why, you know, internationally, countries like India have leapfrogged way ahead of where the US is in terms of instant payments. So I think a lot remains to be seen. And certainly right now is a very fascinating, very powerful proving ground, in part because one, there's a lot more visibility than there ever was to crypto as a more mainstream concept. Although I did go to the Bitcoin conference this year, and I would say the audience was, if anything, not mainstream. But that's okay. (laughs) But I think it's still a really interesting category of innovators. And I think with all the venture money that's flowed in in the last two years, what that's doing is it's fueling more emphasis and work on things that ultimately will hopefully drive the conclusion of the question you're asking. So I guess we're going to have to get back together 
in the next couple of years and chat about whether or not it happened. Yeah, we will do that for sure. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about you. So tell us about your journey to your role as the CEO there. You know, people ask me this question a lot. And I'm always sort of like, what do I say? Because I certainly didn't lie in bed at night being like, today's the day. I'm a CEO. In fact, sometimes I'll read press about Orem or I'll hear a podcast and I'll think, that's not really me. That's a story about someone I know. Because it is kind of hard to wrap your head around the fact that you are a CEO of a company and you have the responsibility, private or not, which we are, of course, privately held, to return shareholder value. You have the responsibility and the obligation to your employees, to treat them well, to pay them well. There's really big things that come with it. I think perhaps many think about it as like, you're the decision maker and that's cool. (laughs) But really what it is, is it's a lot of strategizing. It's a lot of contemplation of what's going on in the market. It's a lot of understanding of how your business health is looking and what drives healthy metrics that ultimately drive good shareholder value. So the journey to get here certainly was not like me waking up one day. I think more what it was is that I thought in the back of my mind, I'd want to be a CEO. But I'd also kind of thought, hey, I'm a great second in command. I'd always worked direct to a CEO or an executive leader. And I loved being number two. What I did in my career is I chose to spend time in a variety of different roles, places, and companies that were exposing me to new things that I hadn't done yet. And actually, prior to founding Aurum, I was in a role at SoulCycle and then Equinox Holdings, which launched the digital at-home business for Equinox and SoulCycle. And my responsibility and remit was to build a digital platform and a physical hardware product. I have no idea how pedals get made on a stationary bike, but I learned. And the reason that was so powerful for me is because I'd never had supply chain experience. The journey to become a CEO is about continuously through my day-to-day work, finding places to round out the experience I hadn't yet had. And I figured someday it would matter if I understood a supply chain. It would matter if I'd managed one or not. And so I wanted to go spend time on that. So that's a long way of saying, you know, the journey has certainly for me not been one that was five steps and very clean cut. In fact, I didn't found Orem until I was quite late in my career. I'm over 40 now. I think the benefit of doing a bit later is that my network is bigger. I have lots of scrapes and bruises from things I've failed at previously. So I won't make those same mistakes this time. The journey has been really amazing, to be honest. I got a chance to build Orem all during the last two years of the global pandemic. I do all of my work from home. I'm sitting here chatting with you barefoot, which is my favorite way of life. And I have a chance for my kids who are currently four and six to be a really big part of what I do every day. They're around the house when they're not at school. It's been really powerful. And again, not obvious, not easy. Some days a little bit of a mind bender where you think about all the possible paths you could take. And you realize that there's plenty of people to call. I have a great 911 list, a great network, great investors. At the end of the day, it's something that you have to do and you have to just make decisions around and know that most decisions can be reversed. Most things can be fixed. So it's been a super fun experience. And I give so much credit to my mom, who's a big part of our lives and helping with the kids, my husband, to be able to be a CEO because it does take a lot of mental energy, physical energy, time and support. And I wouldn't have it any other way, which is to build exactly the way we're doing it, which is a remote first company with a huge emphasis on building a diverse team and ultimately with a mission and vision that is bigger than just real-time payments, right? As you kind of heard me talk about. That's awesome. Well, what are some things you're passionate about? So maybe one work-related passion and one personal passion. Well, it seems like I've probably said this enough times that it's obvious. I'm very passionate about financial access, but I'm very passionate about financial education and financial planning. 
It's how my career got started. I love being in front of folks where even a simple budget question or a question about the right kind of insurance is something that I can help with. And I find that I'm still engaging with off the books, not practicing people who just want to ask a financial question. So I love that. I've spent a lot of my life building and running financial planning clinics, whether that's through organizations who help with folks that are recently paroled from prison, all the way through working with victims of domestic violence who need to restart and everything in between. So I love financial planning. And I'm sure in my future as someday I'm not the CEO of Orem and we've gotten public and I retire, which will eventually happen. I'll be still spending a lot of time volunteering in that capacity. In terms of the rest of my passions, it is a pretty well-known fact about me if you're in my daily life. I love ice cream. I worked at an ice cream store for about four years while I was in college. And it's just like the most fun place on earth. Who doesn't go in to buy ice cream and immediately feel better? Who doesn't feel better (laughs) while eating ice cream? So there's also a small part of me that's like, maybe there's an ice cream truck in my future. (laughs) There's your retirement right there. Exactly. Ice cream and then adjacent to that is anything in the outdoors. So I'm big on mountains, oceans, beaches, hiking, and really trying to make sure that I get a chance to enjoy every bit of fresh air possible, which some days I suppose living out here in the east with the winters is not very much fresh air, but right now taking advantage of lots of that. And I'm sure the ice cream passion that your daughters are very happy you have that passion. Oh, definitely. They were part of my pickup journey for my like usual routine to the local store to get like a week's supply. Of course, they convinced me last night to have ice cream at like basically bedtime, which <laughs> you can imagine how I paid the price for that. But it's okay. It's okay. It brings joy and that's what matters. That's awesome. Well, I always like to ask this final question because I think everyone brings their own kind of unique experiences to this. But I started in the payment space going back 16 years and obviously things have changed a lot. I didn't look at it as, hey, I'm going to have a career in payments or fintech. But I think today, like you said earlier, there's so much money being invested in not just the crypto part of the space, but just the space generally. And I think kids are even taking fintech courses in college now, which of course they didn't have when I was in college. So I think people look at this space and say, hey, I want to start my career in payments or in fintech. It's a really cool industry to be in. So what would your advice be to them? Say they're coming out of college or maybe even jumping from another industry and they want to get involved in payments and understand it and build a career. What would you tell them they should do to be successful? The thing I would say about payments, first and foremost, is to get involved and trial a bunch of financial products, right? Open five different digital bank accounts or investment accounts, buy insurance from any new digital provider, reflect on the product experience, and write down all the things that you feel like could be made better. Because that's where payment starts to get very interesting, right? It's not reading a tome of like the history of, although there are good books out there, the history of the payment system. The first step for me is to be curious. Bring your curiosity because that curiosity will help you see to the areas of interest because there's a vast array of things in the payments ecosystem that you could be working on. And then use that as a jumping off point to think about the kinds of companies that you either want to build if you're an entrepreneur or the kind of company that you want to work in. Does it align with your life passion? Is it something you want to spend time on? Does this problem feel like worthy and interesting to solve? And then I would say, ultimately, surround yourself with and steep yourself in knowledge. There is a lot you can learn about payments that's very learnable, right? This is very much a place where historically, rules and basics are well-documented, well-written down, 
comb through, air quotes, the boring stuff that explains the NACHA rules and how our system was built. Because again, I think that foundational knowledge fuels the thinking about innovation because it helps you understand baseline where we're starting from today. And then put yourself out there. For anybody who wants to category shift, you know, as I mentioned, I went from a career in financial planning and financial software to a career in building a startup that we exited that landed me in a big company. And then I left and I went to SoulCycle and I built bikes to go into an at-home marketplace, which is a total left turn. And to do that, I had to show up with curiosity and put myself out in the market in a way that was distinct from the things that I had done previously. So read, educate yourself. There's lots of good podcasts, including this one, that can give you kind of a baseline on what's going on in the industry. And then try everything. Best advice I can say is try every new financial product, dip your toes in the water and write down that list of things that you think are gaps where you think there's a problem to be solved. And that will be your answer. Awesome. I think that's some great advice. Well, Stephanie, we've covered a lot of ground so far about the company, the future of the industry and you and your journey. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about before we wrap up? I mean, shameless plug, we are one, always hiring. So check out orum.io and further shameless plug if you're listening and you're like, oh, real-time payments, faster money movement, basic money movement, but on a better API, call me or better yet, head to orum.io and there's a couple of ways that you can get in touch. We'd love to work with you. And if you're building your career, look me up on LinkedIn and reach out. I'd be excited to chat about all things payments. Awesome. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for your time today. I know it's very valuable. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much. This was a great conversation. Yes, I really enjoyed it. And to all you listeners out there, I thank you for your time as well. And until the next story. Thank you for joining us this week on the Leaders in Payments podcast. Make sure you visit our website at leadersinpayments.com, where you can subscribe to the show and where you'll find our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please share on your social channels as well. 